We spend a lot of time on FutureLab looking at the newest, most cutting-edge technology. Well, today, for a change, I want to start by taking you somewhere very old. These sanctuary islands, they kind of feel like sanctuaries, they look like sanctuaries, so a little taste of what New Zealand used to be like. So they're mostly the original forest cover, they're mostly almost completely forested. They have amazing bird life. We're being shown around by Andrew Digby, a scientific advisor for the New Zealand Department of Conservation. And they're noisy places. You walk around in the, in the forest there and it's amazing bird song. It's what New Zealand used to be like and that's potentially what New Zealand could be like in the future. And if you're very lucky, you might spot an incredibly elusive creature. They are a bird, but I think it's best to think of them not as a bird because they certainly, they don't behave like one, they don't really look like one. They're incredibly unusual. And this is what they sound like. The bird unlike any other bird that he's describing is the kakapo. I guess the one thing that everyone always says the first time they ever see a kakapo is, wow, it's bigger than I expected. They're a massive, big, fluffy bird which acts a little bit like a, something like a badger. I guess they look a little bit clumsy, but they are amazing climbers. They can climb very quickly. They use their feet and they have their bill, which they use as well a lot. And yeah, I've seen them skittering around in the tops of trees 30, 40 metres above the ground. They also can come down quite quickly too. I've also seen them drop out of trees very fast. They do not fly. I think it was um, Douglas Adams who said they fly like a brick, and that's sort of true. They're just amazing to work with. Kakapo used to be really common, used to live all over New Zealand, but they don't live on the mainland of New Zealand anymore, and that's because humans have made them extinct on the mainland. They only now live on offshore island sanctuaries. And the reason they're in such trouble is entirely down to humans. There are only 200 left in the world. Andrew and others like him are desperately trying to save these weird, wonderful beasts. And to do that, they're fully embracing something that conservation often lags behind in, technology. One of the main things that Kakapo have is every single one of them wears a transmitter and those transmitters enable us to find them. We also use those transmitters to monitor their mating and that's probably when they really come into their own during the breeding season. When a male mates and the transmitter detects that motion, turns on a receiver inside the transmitter which detects any other transmitters which are nearby. So it detects the female that he's mating with. And it logs it as a mating. So it logs the time, the date of that mating, who he was mating with, how long he was mating for, and even a quality score. It's a little bit big brother. We can also tell if other kakapo are nearby. We have a stranger danger alarm, which will sound in the hut. They also have personalised food stations. The feeding stations actually work by, they have a lockable lid. So we put food pellets inside this little hopper, which has got a lockable lid. We can program the data logger so that will only open for certain individuals. And even use drones to help facilitate artificial insemination. And one of the things that you need to do is get the sperm from the male to the female as quickly as you possibly can. And sometimes they'll be quite a long way apart. And there'll be one will be on a tree, up a tree, one side of the island, and the other will be on the other side, and it might take an hour and a half to walk there. But we've found that with drones that we can actually fly between them quite quickly. And so an hour and a half walk can probably take about seven or eight minutes with a drone. But there's something quite inspirational and something about whole when you're walking, you're out in nature, actually that really gets your creative ideas flowing. 
not everything works, but the ability to be able to try these things is actually really important, I think. And yeah, it leads to some quite wacky ideas, but sometimes the wacky ideas work. Their efforts mean that Kakapo numbers have increased 400% since the early 1990s. And hopefully, this technology will mean they can step back from intensively managing these birds and let them get on with their lives in their island sanctuaries. I'd love to be able to go and actually not see a kakapo, but know they're doing okay. So for me, that's where the technology really comes in. And because as we grow and as we get more and more kakapo in more places, we need to rely on that technology more and more to monitor them. While Andrew's team are trailblazing when it comes to using tech in conservation, they're mostly having to rely on existing technology. So is there more the inventors of the world can do to bring conservation into the 21st century? Because kakapos are not the only species in trouble. There is currently a mass annihilation of organic life happening, which has enormous implications for our planet and indeed our own survival. So in this episode of Future Lab, join me, Lucy Johnston, as I find out how cutting-edge technology could help save Earth's biodiversity. From a DNA sequencer that can fit in the palm of your hand, to a microscopic, biodegradable, flying computer chip. This podcast is brought to you by Randox, a medical diagnostics company. And over the course of the series, we'll be hearing from the people who work there. My name is Laura Mooney and I'm a scientist. I work between Randox Laboratories and Randox Health. Randox Laboratories is the side of Randox that develops innovative diagnostic solutions, while Randox Health provides access to personalised health checks and information to everyday people. Laura's been with Randox for over 10 years, so she knows the company inside and out. Her job is to help people understand their diagnostic results. Within my role, I try to translate the science into terminology that can be understood by the general public, to making sure that they understand the testing that they've had done and what it means for them on an individual level. Because of course, a lot of the science can be quite technical and complex. Even after all her years at Randox, Laura still loves what she does. It's the learning, it's the discovery. You know, being a scientist, there's always something new to discover and that's quite exciting. Much of Laura's work revolves around helping people understand the causes and symptoms of many diseases, but in particular, strokes. We're going to come back to Laura later in the episode to hear more about her work identifying strokes. But for now, back to the Future Lab podcast. This is Future Lab. You're with me, Lucy Johnston, and today we're investigating the ways technology might be able to turn the tides for an area that desperately needs help. Conservation is fundamentally not just about protecting awesome things like lemurs and snow leopards. It is fundamentally about ensuring the survival of our own species as well. In 52 years since the first Earth Day, which it will be this coming April 2022, and in 35 years since the founding of conservation biology, the problems have gotten farther away. 
and bigger than our ability to actually solve them. This is Alex Dagan, CEO and co-founder of Conservation X Labs. Alex has always been enamored with the natural world. It helped that, you know, my father watched nature documentaries and that's what I saw all the time. But it was in particular when I was somewhere around eight or nine, I got this book called Extinction Alert that clued me in that there was all these species that were going extinct. And the thought that us as a single species took something like the passenger pigeon whose numbers were so large that they would darken the sky for three days and took billions of birds to zero, just blew my little mind. Alex has had a roller coaster career traveling the world. He's worked in Madagascar, Afghanistan, the US, sometimes living in dangerous situations, all in the name of conservation. I was 22 years old when I went to Russia. I had one year of law school under my belt and then got asked if I could help rewrite Russian environmental law. This was all happening as the Soviet Union was falling apart. We started working with a group called EcoEurus, which would win the Goldman Environmental Prize, which was a all-women's litigation group at that time to sue the Russian government. And we actually had one of the first environmental court cases, which was insane. There was members of the audience would, would cross-examine witnesses. Everyone was cross-examining each other. The rules weren't quite clear. Instead of a jury, they had these things called people's assessors who had to leave after a day of testimony to pick turnips, and it was insane. But one of the issues that was happening was the Westerners were all being kidnapped and held for ransom. And so my friends in the Ministry of Ecology thought that the safest place for me to be was locked up at night in the zoo. So I was actually in, there was a visiting guest zookeeper's house in the middle of the zoo. So I would get locked in the zoo at night, go check out the animals. Uh, it was pretty extraordinary. Alex, who has downsized to a house these days, has funneled all of his efforts into Conservation X Labs, a company aiming to find radical solutions to the problems faced by our planet. Conservation funding is at best 10% of the money that is needed in any given year. And so we needed solutions that were not dependent on philanthropy, but particularly that had business models and were addressing demands and that um, could solve those problems. We use open innovation, so prizes, challenges, both mixing up competition and collaboration, mixing up ideation and testing as a way of sourcing all kinds of problems. Sometimes we'll have conservationists pitch problems to groups of engineers and computer scientists and behavioral scientists. And we want to see that mashup because innovation happens at the borders of those disciplines. I wish we had time to go through all of their inventions. There's a lobster trap which uses sound waves to rise to the surface, which avoids plastic lines entangling other sea creatures. There's super efficient air conditioning units, which one day could save as much electricity as used by Australia in a year. There's even facial recognition for chimpanzees to monitor the illegal wildlife trade. But one particularly exciting device is the Nabbit. The Nabbit is one of those devices we created. So that's nucleic acid barcode identification tool. And then the word is intended to literally mean to grab something, right? In this case, what we're grabbing is DNA, RNA, or proteins. And the idea was, could we actually create a tool 
that allowed anyone anywhere at any time, whether or not they were scientifically literate or even if they were literate, to be able to use the power of molecular science to understand what something is. DNA sequencing has changed the world, enabling us to read the barcode of life itself. But the technology we use to do this is often slow, big and expensive. The NABIT could change all of that. In March of 2020, we realized that it would be an incredibly powerful tool because it's also very low cost. It is as accurate as a PCR test. Instead of costing tens of thousands of dollars or thousands of dollars, it costs hundreds of dollars. And instead of costing hundreds of dollars a test, we're looking at five or ten dollars a test. In terms of how it works, you essentially take a swab, you're going to put it into the device. Those materials actually take out the biological materials from the swab. We are using a technology called LAMP and using that to isolate, amplify, and then we have primers within our cartridges that will essentially create a signal that allow us to use an optical device to then very precisely detect is something present in that sample that we're looking for or not. The NABIT doesn't read the entire DNA sequence, but it can look for certain genetic flags, which would tell you if this is the species you're looking for. So you're not exactly doing full-on sequencing, but what you're doing is asking, is this Pacific coho salmon or is it not? Is this thing one of the 12 species that's red stamper or is it not? Is this powder made out of tiger or is it not? Alex took me through one example of how on-the-go sequencing could be put to use. So if you eat fish in the United States, uh, 30% of the time, that fish is not what people label it as. If you eat red snapper, which is really popular in the United States, our Food and Drug Administration describes red snapper as 12 different species. 88 to 92% of the time, you are not getting red snapper. And 86% of the time when you substitute a fish fraudulently or unintentionally for the fish that you think you have bought, it's coming from a less sustainable fishery. Many of those fish are actually really bad for you. They can be toxic, they can be bad for conservation. Some of the substitutions in fish fraud happen from less sustainable fisheries and they're marketed under fisheries that are actually very sustainable, so you're undercutting conservation efforts, and then you're cheating consumers and you're cheating the planet. So having tools that allow us on the front lines, at a dock, at a customs warehouse, so 90% of the fish in the U.S. is imported, 1% is inspected. People sometimes have less than an hour to make a decision as to how to treat something. There are laws against fish fraud in the United States, but without the ability to actually assess what something is. This device is a handheld, battery-powered, pocket-sized, ruggedized molecular lab it's strong against dust, it works in a range of temperatures, and allows you to take a really quick swab, just like you would for a COVID test, and assess what something is. We want to use it for other purposes, like being able to actually prevent wildlife trafficking, detecting invasive species. One area we're looking at now is really thinking about how we prevent the next pandemics. It's really important that the NABIT is usable in the field, on the front lines, by conservationists who often don't have access to big budgets and work in remote areas. 
And one of the things I really like about the device that we've built in is my wife fixes everything in my house and she does it by watching YouTube videos. She's really quite handy at it. So we have essentially put the video on the front of the device that takes you through every step. And that's part of how we're trying to make it more accessible is we recognize that not everyone can read. And if we really wanna make this a device that takes molecular science to the front lines of conservation or global health or pandemics, this is how we need to do it. A barcode reader small enough to fit in your hand, which could identify illegal and endangered products, is a welcome addition to our anti-extinction toolkit. But what about looking to nature itself for inspiration? After the break. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. Earlier we spoke to Laura, who's fluent in both science and English. It's her job to explain the science behind Randox health tests to the general public. One test Laura has to explain is for differentiating types of stroke. A stroke is essentially an event where there is blood loss to the brain. There's a lack of oxygen to a, a portion of the brain. And there are two main types of stroke. You have an ischemic stroke, and this is a stroke that's caused most often by a, a blood clot. So the clot lodges in a blood vessel and prevents blood from getting to that portion of the brain. Or you can have a hemorrhagic stroke. In a hemorrhagic stroke, there's actually a rupture of the blood vessel leading to bleeding. And in the same way, then that deprives the brain tissue of oxygen. The time after a stroke is crucial as brain cells will quickly start to die without oxygen and that can cause permanent damage to other body functions. A stroke is a leading cause of death and disability in the UK. Around 100,000 strokes occur in the UK each day and it's estimated that around one in six people will experience a stroke in their lifetime. So it is a, it's a huge issue. It can have a, a very lasting impact on a person's life and quality of life. Speed is of the essence when it comes to diagnosing and treating a stroke because the longer the brain is deprived of oxygen, the worse the outcome can be. With stroke, time is an absolute priority. You know, time is brain. The longer it takes to get a diagnosis, the longer it takes to get treatment. Randox realised that there was a need for a much more sensitive and rapid way of, of testing for stroke and that's where the, the stroke biochip came in. You might remember the Randox biochip from previous episodes. It's a 9x9mm ceramic square that allows scientists to carry out multiple diagnostics tests at one time using a single blood sample. The stroke biochip can be used rapidly in A&E and hospital wards. So this test looks for eight different protein markers. These markers are measured from a blood sample, so it's a very non-invasive test that can help to not only identify that a stroke has happened, but can help to discriminate between the type of stroke. Being able to discriminate between the types of stroke is really important because ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes can be difficult to tell apart, yet they're treated with very different approaches. If a doctor doesn't know which type of stroke they're dealing with, the results can be fatal. Later in the episode, we'll hear how the Randox biochip technology can help doctors take the right course of action. But now, back to the Future Lab podcast. A major part of conservation is simply learning about what's happening in the field. 
the more we know about what's going on, the better chance we have of changing things. Our next guest is working on technology that could revolutionise our understanding of the environment with a microscopic, flying, transmittable sensor, so small and so safe, you can eat it. I guess I grew up in an interesting household in the sense that uh, my father has a PhD in atomic and molecular physics and uh, you know, built his career in uh, geophysics. And my mother is a uh, widely published poet where a lot of her focus and topic areas that, that form the basis of her poems are uh, revolving around the natural world. It was a great environment for me. And I think that really serves as kind of the origins of my interests in, um, in science. This is Dr. John Rogers of Northwestern University. His lab specialises in medical sensors for the inside of the human body. But about three years ago, they decided to change direction. We've started to think about whether those base technologies uh, developed for monitoring the human body could be adapted and deployed to monitor the environment around us. I think there are a lot of reasons to be interested in what's going on in our environment, right? It ultimately impacts the, the health of the planet and the health of the human species as well. And so, and animals and, you know, just on and on. So the natural world more generally. But unlike the body, which, all being well, is fairly contained, the environment is sprawling and ever-changing. So to get useful information, John needed a totally new way of gathering data. The traditional way for environmental monitoring, whether that's monitoring pollution or chemical spills or maybe various you know, heavy metal contaminants in the environment, is to uh, use a large-scale kind of bulk analysis instrument that maybe sucks in air and filters the air and then does sensing kind of at a single point location. But if you think about, let's say, um, you know, movement of pollutants through an atmosphere, it's probably better and more useful to have a full spatio-temporal mapping of concentrations of those species rather than measurements of them at a single point location. You either have to take these single unit conventional type of sensing systems and then move them around in space rapidly enough to allow for that kind of mapping. Or the other way to do it is large-scale arrays, collections of individual sensors. So could you use thousands of sensors dispersed across the environment? It sounds tricky for a number of reasons. You need something tiny that can spread itself over a huge area. But John and his team think they're on their way, thanks to a very helpful set of blueprints. I think evolution has been able to come up with spectacularly clever and sophisticated solutions to daunting technical challenges. I mean, the process of natural selection is very powerful in that sense. And so it occurred to us that would be a natural place to look. You know, I think our first concept, and, and this was like almost childlike in a sense, is to think about, you know, tiny active flying structures, you know, like insects. But it occurred to us that that's kind of a cool idea, but probably one that um, we won't be able to achieve, you know, probably in my lifetime, you know, just given all the challenges. And so, you know, we took one step back and said, well, is there something simpler than, you know, insect flight that's governing, you know, dispersal in the biological world? And uh, so plants became a pretty natural 
thing for us to think about and focus on. Think of blowing a dandelion to find out the time, or of the cloud-like seeds of cottonwood trees. Trees have worked out brilliant ways of spreading their offspring as far and wide as possible, without the luxury of legs. So why not look there for inspiration? All these you know, kinds of structures are, are designed to achieve dispersal, but in a much simpler and maybe more technically feasible sort of set of ideas. And so that became our focus because we thought it was a little bit more realistic. The blueprint they landed on was the maple tree seed, a flat structure with two wings that spins around as it flies through the air, like a little propeller. We try to engineer these systems to have the slowest rate of free fall so that it falls as slowly as possible. That's probably a key design consideration for nature as well, but also, and this is different than uh, any kind of consideration in, in the plant world, is that we would like to extend the engagement time for the sensors to measure species in the atmosphere. So you'd like it to kind of float, uh, you know, around so that we can you know, sense particulate pollution or airborne pathogens. John and the team set to work on a microflyer, a tiny sensor that would fly in a similar way but that could also sense the environment and relay that information. The computer chip sits in the centre of three thin wings, which are tapered to make sure it spins. They're kind of like fidget spinners. So all the way from dimensions that are kind of comparable to those of a, the diameter of a human hair, so 100 microns, 50 microns, all the way up to several millimetres, even centimetres. And so you really want to be able to operate at small sizes, uh, but not too small. It turns out that um, the aerodynamics are such that once the devices are smaller than about one millimeter in diameter, then all of that special aerodynamics that leads to this rotational stable flight characteristic, it sort of begins to disappear and then everything just drops like a sphere. They, there's just no aerodynamic advantage of having the wings. And the final challenge in this litany of tough challenges is how do you get the sensors back? Well, that's the really clever part. I think if we didn't have a clear idea of how to answer the question of how are you going to retrieve all of these thousands of devices that you've just distributed across the environment, if we didn't have an answer for that, I don't think we would even have started because absent an answer, you're developing really sophisticated technologies for creating pollution and uh, electronic waste and litter, you know? <laughs> so this is probably not something one would want to spend a lot of time on. But back to, you know, the original motivation and the starting point, as I mentioned, you know, we've done a lot of work over the years on body integrated sensors as physiological monitoring. In some instances, we've designed those devices as advanced implants. We've developed a whole portfolio of water-soluble, biocompatible electronic materials for those applications, and they can be adapted in a very straightforward way for these kinds of environmental monitors. John is so sure of their biodegradability, he's put his money, or rather his microflyer, where his mouth is. 
They are edible. I've eaten some. You know, you got to get kind of fully involved in this stuff, and uh, there's nothing toxic about it. it. Tastes like chicken, like everything else. <laughs> no, they don't really taste like anything. It's small enough, you know, that it's um, you you don't even notice it. We can build these flyer structures out of silk-based biopolymers. And then the circuit structures themselves consist of materials that you would find in a multivitamin supplement. So it's magnesium, it's uh, silicon, there's some calcium, zinc in some cases. And uh, those materials are not only recommended components of a daily diet, a healthy daily diet. So you can almost think about these devices as not only water-soluble electronics, but like really lousy vitamin tablets. So in theory, these tiny microchips would be released in an environment and scattered to the wind. Each one would detect its immediate surroundings and either send that information back to a hub or could even change colour to announce the presence of some kind of contaminant. Then, its job completed, it would biodegrade and melt away into harmless components. John is still in the early phases of testing, but there is interest from all kinds of industries. So several in weather monitoring in a totally different, maybe much more high resolution fashion than what's possible with weather radar systems. So it would sort of complement, you know, that kind of approach. So, so we're in contact with a few different groups in that industry. Uh, a number of different oil companies have contacted us and, and we've started to um, discuss with them how these sorts of approaches might help addressing future oil spills that may occur or chemical spills in general. A couple of companies in, in the area of uh, water and water supply. So, you know, heavy metal contamination in, in water, in groundwater is, is really important consideration in, in many cases. So tiny microflyers might be on their way soon, gathering previously inaccessible information about our environment and helping conservationists direct their efforts to where they're needed most. We've only heard a couple of examples of how technology can help conservationists, but really, the sky is the limit. Back to Alex Dagan. I think this huge hope it's not to say that the problem isn't serious, but if it's serious, let's use the very same tools of innovation that have allowed us to just recently fly a drone on the surface of Mars to address the problems on this planet. We're on a planet that's not a failed planet. It has been an incredibly successful planet for life. Let's invest in this planet through technology, through innovation, and through hope. Technology is neutral. Right? It's what we use it for. It can be used for incredible things and it can be used for really terrible things, right? It's what we put it to service for. And we've got way too many people designing better dinner reservation apps and too few people are thinking about ways to protect snow leopards. So to any budding technologist listening, you know where your help is needed most. Thank you to our guests, Alex Dagan, Andrew Digby, and John Rogers. I'm Lucy Johnston. This podcast is brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying this series of Future Lab, please take a moment to follow, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. 
FutureLab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, Laura Mooney told us how Randox biochip technology can be used to help diagnose strokes using a patient's blood sample. The two main types of stroke are ischemic and hemorrhagic, and they require very different treatments. It's really important that a doctor knows which type they're working with. So you imagine if there's an ischemic stroke and there's a blood clot lodged somewhere in a blood vessel to the brain, if you can administer clot-busting drugs, you can dissolve that clot and help to sort of reduce the, the ongoing damage to the brain. If you were to inadvertently administer clot-busting drugs to someone who is bleeding, the consequences could be catastrophic because they're going to continue to, to bleed in the brain. This is why it's essential doctors know which type of stroke they're dealing with, and fast. When a patient is rushed into hospital after signs of a stroke, they're subjected to tests which can take a lot of time. But in that time, a stroke patient's symptoms can get much worse. An ischemic stroke setting I've talked about these clot-busting drugs, but they're really only effective within the first four and a half hours of the onset of a stroke. So if someone presents to hospital and doesn't get tested and diagnosed until six hours after the initiation of the stroke event, then th those treatments are, are not useful. This is where the Randox Stroke Biochip technology comes in. The Randox Stroke test can help to identify or rather discriminate between the ischemic and the hemorrhagic stroke, but it can also help to pinpoint time from stroke onset. Some of the markers are particularly sensitive in the very early first three hours of symptom onset. With the biochip, doctors can determine if the stroke occurred within the last four and a half hours and be able to determine how effective clot-busting therapy will be. You can learn more about the work Randox does by visiting randoxhealth.com.